Well, as you know, we're moving on in our series in Joshua, and today we're looking at Joshua chapter 7. And we'll read it in a minute, um, not all of it, but I'd just like to start off with a question, really. And the question is, what would you like for an episode? Now, I'm not supposing anyone's going to die today, let's hope not, but what would you choose as a suitable epitaph for you? Um, I was reading over the weekend the story of a, a Scottish pastor called Henry Scougal, not sure if I'm saying his name right, from the 17th century. And he only lived 28 years, but in those 28 years he packed an awful lot and wrote a little booklet that was responsible for John Wesley and um, George Whitfield basically coming to Christ and being renewed in their faith. And uh, at his funeral they said he truly lived much in a few years and died an old man at 28 as the Scots do, they have a good way with words. Maybe you'd like the epitaph that Moses had put in by probably an editor in Numbers saying he was the humblest man on earth. I hope it was an editor who put it in and not him. Um, That would kind of defeat the the claim, really. Perhaps you'd like Paul's epitaph when he wrote to Timothy, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the good faith. That's quite an inspiring one. I I think I'd go more for his other one, which was, Here lies the chief of sinners. Um or the least of saints, which he also claimed for himself. But today in Joshua 7, we're going to read the story of someone who came to be known simply as the troubler of Israel, and that is Achan. And I'm sure you're familiar with the sin of Achan. If you're not, we'll just read the first first five verses of chapter 7 to kind of get an idea of the story. And I think it's um, page 221 on your church Bibles, and it says this in in Joshua chapter 7. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people. For only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gates as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Now, we we know we're in the story of um, the conquest of Canaan. We've had the amazing experience of the people of Israel crossing the Jordan in full flood. We've seen how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, and they basically won the battle without having to uh, storm the walls or anything. They've seen God's amazing miracles on their behalf. And this is perhaps the kind of the high point of um, the book of Joshua. You know, everything has gone perfectly. They're on top of the world. They're ready to carry on the conquest. And we read in 6 verse 27 that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. So this was, you know, they were at the peak. Everyone was frightened of them, just waiting. You know, when's it our turn to be defeated by the Israelites? When are we going to, basically, when, when's our number up? And then we read this, this telling verse in, in verse 1, chapter 7. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Um, that little word, but, tells us that if they were up on the top, something is about to go drastically wrong. So, what has gone wrong? Well, we read that Ai, the son of various people, took some of the devoted things. 
And um, the devoted things in the Old Testament are things that God demanded that were given over to him fully and irrevocably. They were basically to be destroyed, usually, the people they, they beat in the, in the battle, for example, in Jericho, or they were to be given over to the Lord's treasury. But Achan, seeing, as we find out later in the story, a beautiful robe, it says from Babylonia or Shinar, decided he wanted that. And he saw some gold, some shekels of gold, some shekels of silver, which are just probably bars of gold and silver, and he took them for himself. And Israel seems to be unaware of this sin. They carry on blithely as if everything is still okay. And maybe presumptuously, Joshua does not seek God before he sends out the men to air. He just says, you know, God is with us, let's go for it. It's a small town. In fact, it's not even called Ai. Ai just simply means the ruin. That's all that Israel left of it by the end of chapter 8. So when they're writing down this story, they either didn't know the name or couldn't remember it, and just said, well, that ruin we dealt with. So it says it's a small town. Chapter 8 tells us there's only about 12,000 people there, so maybe they only had an army of 3,000. So Israel sent off their 3,000, assuming God was still with them. And then in verses 4 to 5, we find out you know, the terrible story. They're defeated. Maybe 36 men are killed in the initial battle, and then they chase them out and kill some more. We don't know. But it says the hearts of the people melted and became like water. And that might remind you of what the people of Canaan were like just a few chapters ago. Rahab telling the spies, says, our hearts are like water. They melted. We don't have any courage to face you. And it says in chapter 5, the kings east, west of the Jordan, their hearts were melting and they had no courage to face Israel. And all of a sudden we find this topsy-turvy situation where Israel feels like the people it's supposed to be defeating. Their hearts have melted. They're like, what are we going to do? We've lost the battle. Everyone else is going to hear about this. We don't know what's going on. God is not with us, seemingly. We're going to get wiped out. A terrible situation. I'm sure you've been thinking of the, the D-Day celebrations, and this would be like, the D-Day landings going successfully and then losing all the next battles and they end up on the beach hoping for a sort of Dunkirk situation again. This was how Israel felt. We've come, we've conquered, now we're backpedaling. What is going on? Now perhaps we think that seems to be a big deal for what Achan did. You know, he just stole a robe and a bit of gold and silver. But if we look in chapter 6, verses 17 to 19 and read those, we see just how... Um, terrible his sin was, if you like. Right before they go into Jericho, after they've you know, marched around, the walls have fallen down, um, Joshua says this, the city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. In other words, destroyed. Only, he only spared Rahab because of what she'd done with the spies. And then in verse 18, he says this to everyone, and we have to assume Achan was there listening, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them, and otherwise you'll make the whole camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Right there we have exactly what has happened in, chapter, in, in the first five verses. Achan has taken something that should have been destroyed and taken that something that should have been given over to God, and right now trouble has come upon Israel and they feel liable to destruction. Suddenly, they feel like they're the ones who are going to be destroyed. And so then, having seen this situation, Joshua, as a good leader, tears his clothes and falls face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And in, the, in verses 6 to 9, he starts praying to God, basically saying, what on earth is going on? I thought you were with us. And he sounds a bit like the Israelites when he says, if only we'd stayed on the other side of the Jordan. 
Sounds a bit like them coming out of Egypt. If only we'd never left Egypt. But in verse 9, we do find that his prayer takes on a new dimension. And I'll just read that to you. He says to God in his prayer, The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? He's obviously learned from how Moses prayed. Because time and time again in the history of the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, they blow it, they mess up, and God says, Moses, stand aside. I'm just going to wipe them out and start with you again. And Moses says two or three occasions, Lord, don't do that. If you do that, everyone will say you couldn't take them into the promised land. What about your name and what about your great mercy? And so Joshua follows in the footsteps of Moses and seemingly causes God to relent by calling upon God's name and his mercy. And that's a real theme in in the whole Old Testament, this idea of God's mercy and his name being so important to him and that he wants the other nations to know that's who he is, this God, this great God, powerful and merciful. So God does reply to Joshua at the end of this days of mourning and complaining. And he says, there, there, Joshua, don't worry, I'll sort it out. No, he says, Joshua, why are you on your face? Get up. You guys have blown it, not me. And really, Joshua should have known this. Everything he warned them of, as we read in chapter 6, came to pass. And he should be thinking at that point, the problem's with us, not with God. But he was kind of saying, God, you know, what's going on? What have you done? Why aren't you with us? And so we see this um, answer from God, basically saying, if you want to have my presence again, you need to deal with the sin in your midst. And here's Joshua saying, well, I didn't even know there was sin in our midst. But God's presence won't return to Israel, he promises them, in verses 10 to 13, unless they deal with it. He says, Israel has sinned, they've violated my covenant, and he goes on into chapter 12, that's why you can't, into verse 12, that's why you can't stand against your enemies. And he says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And so he tells Joshua, just like he did at chapter 3, verse 5, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. And as God acted in the amazing way of, deliver- of bringing the people of Israel across the Jordan, so now, he, and, and he demanded that they consecrate themselves, and they were ready for that, he says the same thing here. You must consecrate yourselves and get ready, because I'm going to act tomorrow, not in salvation, but in judgment. And when God moves, he needs our consecration. And we'll look at that a bit further later on. So, we have this situation where God basically tells Joshua exactly how to do it. And um, there is one thing that we probably find that we don't understand in this passage. And that is that there seems to be a corporate dimension to Achan's sin. When we read in in verse 1, it says, the Israelites acted unfaithfully. It doesn't say just Achan, it says all of Israel. And then when God is telling off Joshua, basically, he says, Israel has sinned. And he says, they have violated my covenant. Not just Achan. They have taken the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put the stuff with their own possessions. And it's perhaps hard for us in our very individualistic Western society to understand this corporate aspect. But with the people of God, what we do as as an individual affects the body around us. And that was very true for Achan's sin here. Um, maybe partly cultural in, in the Middle East as well, but it's definitely part of being part of the, of the people of God, that we are somehow linked in a way that we often don't understand. So then God tells Joshua what to do. Present yourselves tribe by tribe in verse 14, and the tribes that court will find the clan. And so this big scene happens the next day. 
in verse 16, it says, Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. Now, if you could imagine the scene, all the people of Israel camped, fearful for their lives, and then we have this kind of investigation to see who's the guilty party. So obviously not all the tribes would come by, but representatives. So you have the 12 representatives of the 12 tribes coming by, and God somehow, maybe through lots, is indicating which is the guilty tribe. Maybe it was the first tribe chosen or the last one. But you can imagine the collective sigh of relief from the 11 other tribes when Judah was chosen. They're like, whew, it's not us. And everyone in Judah is starting to squirm in their seats and uh, start to wonder what's going on. And then it says they were taken by clans, and Judah was one of the more... Um, had one of the larger numbers of people. So there were a lot of clans. You imagine the process as the minutes tick by, maybe the hour before finally the clan of Zerah is chosen. And then everyone other clan is kind of relaxing. But his family is starting to worry. And then he gets down to the, to the family of Zimri and finally Achan. And you can imagine how Israel was feeling. Here was the guy who's responsible for the 36 deaths the families of those men who they'd lost a husband, a father, a brother, they were saying, this is the person who's responsible. And then the, his family saying, you know, what kind of shame has he brought upon us? And Joshua confronts him in verse 19 and says, my son, give glory to the God, Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And you imagine that Achan probably could have stopped this process at any moment. He could have stepped forward and say, it's me. I'm the one who's done it. But he waited till the last minute. Maybe he thought they wouldn't be able to find it in all those tents. I don't know. But God knew who it was and indicated to Joshua just who it was. And so Achan confesses. And we find a, an interesting thing in his confession. He says in verse 20, It's true, I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. And the process he went through is meant to remind us of the process of sin from the very beginning. He saw something that he wanted. He took it. He, he coveted it because he saw it was good, and he took it. And the same three Hebrew words are used in Genesis 3 verse 6, where it says, Ad and Eve saw the fruit, saw that it was desirable, which is the same as covet in Hebrew, and she took it. And what she did was she reclassified that fruit from being a forbidden fruit to good for food, it says in 3 verse 6. And in the same way, Achan reclassified that robe and that gold, not as something dedicated to God, but as spoil. Because usually when they conquered a town, the spoil was legitimate. But Joshua, as we read in, in chapter 6, made it very clear. In Jericho, there's no such thing as spoil. Everything we win goes either to God or to destruction. But Achan managed that little trick. No, it's actually spoil. It's not too bad. I'll just have this and this. And so we have the terrible consequences of what he does. And um, when we read in verses 22 to 25, it's another very hard thing for us to understand a few thousand years on and in our society through our understanding of justice because it says in verse 24, after they'd found the things under his tent, that Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. 
And after they'd stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. Now, we probably can't imagine stoning a whole family for what a father has done. But that was how it was working in the people of God. One man was responsible for all those deaths in Israel, and his responsibility carried over to his family. We can understand that <clears throat> his family would have been complicit in his sin. If you've ever been camping, you probably know you can't hide much from the rest of the people in the tent. At least that's my experience. And you can't hide much from your neighbors either, because you can hear all their noises and they can hear all yours. So whatever Achan did, he did with the full knowledge of his family. And all of them paid in that sin because of what they'd brought on Israel. And even though we might not understand that, that sense of corporate punishment, it at least warns us as leaders, as parents, that those we're responsible for are often the ones who suffer the consequences of our misguided actions. But Achan had been warned. His family knew the consequences. Joshua reminded, of them, uh, reminded them of that in verse 25. He said, why have you brought this trouble on us? And I can imagine that why was not a factual, you know, why did you do it? I imagine that why was with a lot of pain, with a lot of, why on earth did you do that? You know what's going to happen. Why did you bring that on us? And I think that's how God asks us when we sin, why? Not in that, okay, now you're going to get it, that we see here, but because it's such a painful thing for him, for us, for our families, and for the church we're part of. So then in verse 26, we have this memorial. Um, Andrew was talking about the rocks, the significance of rocks in the time of Israel, how they would bring these memorial stones. And this time we see a pile of rocks that was meant to stand as, as a warning to the consequences of breaking God's covenant. They piled up the rocks over his body and all his possessions, and it says when they, at the time they wrote this that it still remains to this day. You could go on a tour and see the memorial to Achan and think, I don't want to end up like that. And then it ends the story by saying, the Lord turned from his fierce anger. And if you remember in 7 verse 1, that's exactly how this, the story started, with God's fierce anger burning against Israel because of Achan. And now his fierce anger is turned, and we read on in chapter 8 that Israel finally defeats Ai. They go on, and at the end of chapter 8, which I think is very significant, they renew the covenant that Moses had told them to once they'd gained and established themselves in the land. And how much more poignant that must have been after seeing someone who'd broken it and brought such consequences on them. They suddenly realized this wasn't anything to be taken for granted. This wasn't a game. The people of Israel, as the covenant people of God, had a responsibility for obedience. It wasn't just a guaranteed, do what you like and I'm with you. And so when they renewed the covenant, they set up another pile of stones that reminded them of that too. So we have these reminders throughout Joshua of the significant moments of, of what is going on. And, and you have to think this is a very significant story. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been, been included. You know, 26 people dying is probably not that big of a deal when we think of modern warfare. But it was significant enough because of what Achan had done to be recorded here in this chapter. So... How can we apply that to us today? Because, you know, we don't pull people out and stone them anymore. We live under God's grace. I'm not planning on drawing lots to find out who's sinning this morning. Maybe we'd all come up guilty. 
I'm not planning to unmask the Achan of Abbey or the Troubler of Abbey. So you can relax in your seats, at least as far as that. But I believe what we can learn from Achan is very important for what we've been talking about in this series, which is whole life discipleship, about truly following Christ. And when you think about Achan, he'd been through all of Deuteronomy. That was basically one hugely long sermon from Moses just before he died. He'd heard all of Deuteronomy and all the consequences there would be for breaking the covenant. He'd seen God's amazing miracles crossing the Jordan in flood. He'd defeated Jericho, and here he is sinning immediately after this amazing event. And when you think about it, God had actually spent 40 years wiping out a generation just so that this wouldn't happen. And then what, what do we find? The minute they get a foothold in the land, boom, somebody blows it again. And that's a, that's a pattern we find over and over again in the Old Testament, right from the time of Adam and Eve. In fact, the whole of Judges, the next book, follows that pattern. There's a judge, God raises it up, people blow it, there's another judge. We see it in the time of Saul. He was God's chosen one. And for disobedience, God took the kingdom away and gave it to David, who was no saint, as we know with the story of Bathsheba. Solomon and his wives in idolatry. All through the Old Testament, we see this pattern that the people of God come to God, they're renewed, they're following him, and someone blows it. We might actually compare it to the New Testament too. Might, this is not just an Old Testament problem. We are celebrating today in the Abbey Way, very informally, Pentecost Sunday. Mike wanted to see a crowd of 3,000 this afternoon, but I don't think it will happen. But right after that amazing event in Acts chapter 2, just three chapters later, you have Acts chapter 5, which is where Ananias and Sapphira basically repeat Achan's sin. They dedicate, this time willingly, something to God, and then they hold back a little bit and say, well, actually, this is ours, and try and lie to the church, to the Holy Spirit, and we know what happened to them. They fall down dead. So, and again, when we look at the rest of the New Testament, a lot of it is dealing with not the troubles they have in the world, although that is part of it. It's often dealing with problems within the church. We are sinners. If you find the perfect church, don't join it, because you'll ruin it. Um, that, that's why we came to Abbey, because, no, I haven't seen that. <laughs> but we do have this culture, in, in Britain at least, that we're allowed to put on a nice face and, you know, we walk in the door and everything's fine. Spain, where we used to be, they're a bit more raw, a bit more in your face. You know, we've had some wonderful church annual meetings there, where you're tearing your hair out, crying, because people just say a bit too much. Not very polite at all. Um, but what we do is we hide what's going on behind our faces, and we're also very good at this reclassification of sin. So it's not a sin anymore, it's a personal struggle. Um, it's not a sin, it's a personality trait. It's not sin, it's just a little minor thing I'm dealing with. And so we go on reclassifying things and hide what's going on behind our, in our, inside us and pretend that everything is well. We cover up. And I think it's... Um, Interesting that um, Paul brought the fruit of the Spirit because we struggle to demonstrate that and yet you know, we kind of say, well, it's okay, no one's perfect. That's how we kind of live with our own sinfulness when we're supposed to be good Christians. So there is this pervasiveness of sin among the people of God. Wherever you go in the, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, you find sinners. And wherever you go today in a church, you will find sinners. And you're looking at one. And... I think what we can learn from this chapter is that sin has consequences. Much as we live under grace, there are still consequences to sin. 
for Achan, for his family, for all of Israel, the consequences were quite terrible. Thankfully, we are under a new covenant, and we don't end up like Achan, but there are consequences. Grace is not the opposite of sin, it's the opposite of law. That means we no longer live judged by the law, but we still pay the consequences. Not the eternal consequences of being without God in eternity, but Paul makes it clear in Galatians 6, 7-8. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. I memorized those verses and then tried to forget them as hard as I could because it just doesn't leave you anywhere to go when you've sinned. It makes it clear there are consequences that we will deal with. And those consequences can be corporate, as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 5. He talks about uh, a blatant sinner in sexual sin there who is bringing trouble on the whole church. And he says, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? What we do does have an effect, sometimes directly because our sin is against someone, but other times just because it's yeast in a whole batch of dough. We're the batch of dough, and our sin, my sin, affects you. It's a bit like a football injury. I've had my knee blow out with a ligament, tiny thing that long, and I felt like I'd been shot. I was in southern Lebanon at the time, so it could have been possible, but it was just my ligament. I couldn't play football for a year. That little bit of injury completely took me out of what I was supposed to be doing. And that's how it is with the church. Just the little sins that we hide are yeast working their way through the whole batch of dough. So there are consequences, and there is, is, is this corporate nature of sin today. And when we look at the story of Achan, we see that sin must be dealt with. Joshua had to deal with Achan for God's presence to go with him. Now we are under the new covenant, but grace doesn't mean sweeping things under the carpet. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians to deal with this guy, basically get rid of that yeast, kick out this person who's causing that trouble. Those are tough words from Paul. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, argues against cheap grace, which he says is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And we need to learn that just because we're under grace, it doesn't mean we can hide away our sin and not deal with it. I will say one thing before um, I move on rather quickly because of time. The goal of any church discipline is always restoration. And sometimes we're good at the 1 Corinthians bit and forget what happened in 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, talking about the same person who'd been disciplined, he says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And that is also a part of dealing with sin. It's reaffirming our love for the person caught in sin. Unfortunately, we can be good at the discipline and kicking out bit, but forget the restoration, the forgiveness, and reaffirming of love bit. So I think it's important that as individuals and as a church, we learn to battle sin because we are all sinners. And obviously, we rely 100% on God's grace, the provision he's made through Jesus' death on the cross, but I think we can learn from Achan that there are things we can do practically to help us in that. Temptation, yes, is inevitable, but falling in it is not. If we understand that process that we saw in Achan, we can understand better how to deal with our own sin. Sin works on our own desire. 
It's when we see something and we covet it and we take it. It's that process. James says the same thing. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we need to learn to interrupt that process, if you like. We need to try, when we've seen something that we desire, to break it there before it goes on to becoming coveting and before it goes on to giving birth to, death, to sin, which brings death. And it may be different things for different people. Jesus very often speaks against the foolishness of the desire for riches. The parable of the rich fool, the rich young ruler. He talks about how that can destroy you. There may be other things. Sexual sin. Maybe wanting power, position, your career. They're all really modern forms of idolatry where we take something that should be given to God, which is our life and our time, and we put it in something else. Henry Schugel, the guy I read, uh, mentioned earlier, says the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. What we most love and most desire is how we can really measure what's going on inside us. So we must interrupt that process and learn to defeat sin there. And we see stories like Joseph, who fled from Potiphar rather than trying to stand it out. And Paul says to Timothy, a young man, don't fight evil desires, flee from them. Stop coveting before you reach the point of giving in and taking it. Stop looking before you, it turns into coveting. So if we understand the process and we know our own areas of weakness, we can do a lot towards interrupting that process through God's power, through his grace. And I'll just close with this last point. This battle is not meant to be a solitary one. We are meant to fight this battle with other people. This is not a men's meeting, so I won't talk about men and their failures in sexual areas and sexual sin, things like that. Don't want to give the ladies anything to gossip over, over coffee. But part of the problem is that we're reluctant to talk about things in the open. Gordon MacDonald, who wrote a book about rebuilding your broken world after his world broke through his own sin, said, Not many people like to talk about this dimension of our inner selves, and our very ignorance or neglect of it may portend our vulnerability to brokenness. If God whispers, evil often shouts, and personal worlds break when that shouting gets our attention. We are all going to be tempted. We're all susceptible to it. I know there are some here who are more saints than others, um, but we do all struggle. And we need one another in that struggle. If I keep what's going on inside me, I'm much more likely to fall than if I find someone I can share that with. So I love our home groups, but I don't want Cynthia choking on her cake next time she comes. So I need to find maybe a small group of guys that will support me, that I can support them. So that it's something very intimate, very... Uh, without it being known by the whole church, maybe we can support each other mutually and be that help in this ongoing battle against sin, which does not change as we get older. It's not been perhaps the easiest or lightest subject today, but I think whole life discipleship means being serious about dealing with sin in our own life. What epitaph do we want? Certainly not that of Achan, the troubler of Israel. So I think... We need to work together in this to grow in maturity in Christ and to be whole life disciples. And we have all that we need when we take the communion. We'll remember Jesus Christ's sacrifice and his death on the cross and the fact that we have confidence to enter God's presence by the blood of Jesus as failures, as sinners, but confidence to enter because of his blood. So I don't want it to be all doom and gloom and so serious that we forget this amazing gift of grace we've been given that unlike Achan, we can sin and get up again and be restored.
So let's pray and then we'll hand over to Paul again. Father, when we think of this story, we're shocked really and we're reminded again of how vulnerable we are all to sin. And Lord, I pray that you will help us uh, be vulnerable to one another so that we can help one another. And that we will rely on your grace and your strength to break the process of sin in our own lives and to help others and be helped by others. We thank you for the provision you've made through Christ's death on the cross that we can come to you freely with grace, knowing that you love us and you forgive us, despite the fact that we are sinners and that you've actually called us saints because of what Christ has done. In Jesus' name, amen.